Hi, I'm Leslie Carrara Rudolph. I'm Lolly Lard Pop. And I'm Abby Kid Abby. And you're listening to Sci Fi Saturday Night with the Dome. Sci Fi Saturday Night. <laughs> Tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you get me so easily. It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess and faith that you will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Welcome to yet another Area 51 recording of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. The first podcast guaranteed that if you listen, you can hear stuff. Tonight, in episode 434, we look forward with great anticipation to listening to people talk. Because that's what we do. On board for tonight's podcast at the Sci-Fi Saturday Night Gaming Console and Help Desk, our own button-pushing, keyboard-clacking, sonic, screwdrivering, auto, audio virtuoso. You know, I used to be able to say that straight through. Crown is back there somewhere, pressing a button, doing something. Please welcome uh, Cyborg University's preeminent reference librarian, currently contracted at the Glitter Palace. She loves Dr. Pepper Cotton Candy Bites, enjoys opening boxes repeatedly, and adores renovated kitchens with all new appliances. It's so great to have you back, Zombrarian. It is great to be back. We've missed you. How is how is your new gig at the Glitter Palace? Well, coronavirus has made the Glitter Palace a much less busy place. But other than that, it's been good. Uh, last week, we, we actually moved on to glow-in-the-dark glitter. So, <laughs> everybody's got something to look forward to in life, I guess. There yeah. we go. Yours was glow-in-the-dark glitter. Finally, major minor to Colonel Colonel, the man who pays 35 cents for dime novels and thinks that light sticks are demonic, it's Captain Cam. You know, I've, I've decided, you know, with all this talk of the coronavirus, I'm just going to kick it old school, and I'm just going to catch the Y2K bug. I I don't want to hear coronavirus anymore. <laughs> How many times have I texted you and went, goddamn virus, this has to stop. Too many. Too many. Especially it's the 6 a.m. ones are my favorite. <laughs> well, when I wake up in the morning and with my first cup of coffee, I'm watching some idiot wails about the coronavirus. That's that's it. I've had enough. By the way, Italy no longer exists as of today, evidently. Oh, good Lord. Anyway, on to more pleasant fare. <laughs> on tonight's show, we welcome uh, Boston native, or Boston native now, Jeffrey Carver. He's the author of 18 science fiction novels, including the recently published duology Reefs of Time and Crucible of Time. This two-part novel, Carver returns to his signature series, The Chaos Chronicles, which means it's a series within a series that's really not a series 
and a duology that's really a novel. We will explain it all to you. <laughs> his work ranges from hard science fiction to space opera, sprinkled with a healthy dose of wonder, which I really enjoy about it. He's taught writing in many settings from educational television to the Odyssey Workshop to MIT to his own workshops. He has his own blog at starrigger.net and his free guide to aspiring authors at at writesf.com. We will have links to both of those for you guys to listen to. In the meanwhile, Mr. Carver, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. I'm really glad you're here because on, on a, after the week that's been going on, we could use a dose of whimsy. Oh, now, we sure could. We sure could. <laughs> it's been one hell of a week. Um, and for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, because you're listening to a freaking podcast, and this could be in December, look at the date we recorded it, then you'll have it figured out. In any case. <laughs> would you like the news update? Since I'm back, would you like the news update from my off-world yes. colony? Please, please. Okay, so um, two updates. Number one, I used to have an army made out of golden retrievers, and I ended up with too many golden retriever babies and not enough food for everyone. No, so no. I had my little colonists slaughter all the golden retriever puppies to make food for their parents. So that was the first horrible thing I did. And um, then I finally got the minion mod to work and by I I mean Kriana got it to work for me and uh, now I have a minion army instead so what are you doing with the golden retrievers they all died in a firefight <laughs> yeah they all died in a firefight with, with a giant with a giant slug next time I'm there I have to see this in all its glory I will this sounds the, like the best game ever. It is. Well, I'm still playing Tetris, so what the hell do I know? Well, this, <laughs> there are little people and they move. I know, I know, I know. All right, that's been that's been the news update from that. Thanks, love. Always appreciate it. One day we'll hear what Cam's doing. Oh, I know what he's doing tomorrow, and he's just annoyed as hell by it. But that's a whole <laughs> different story. <laughs> In trying to explain where reefs of time exists within your body of work, and having talked to you just kind of briefly about it before we actually started recording or we actually started recording for the show, the claim is that reefs of time and crucible of time was at one time one large novel that became two manageable novels within another universe that you've already written significant amount of work in called the chaos chronicles close that is pretty close yep <laughs> <laughs> okay let's start no, with the obvious no. <laughs> why so there are pre four uh four previous volumes of the chaos chronicles and then there was a, uh, it took me a number of years to get the next one written, and that was to be number five, The Reefs of Time. The Reefs of Time turned out to be, I think it was 265,000 words, which is a little bit long for a single novel. And uh, it's actually kind of long for two novels, but I split it into two. 
and released them just two months apart so that people didn't have to wait forever for the uh, second half of the story and released them as uh, volumes five and six in the Chaos Chronicles. It's a little misleading because the other volumes one through four are each self-contained stories within a larger story arc. Whereas these two, you really do have to read together. You don't have to have read the first four, but you okay. have to read these and two that together. Was, that was my next point, that you really don't have to read the first four, because I haven't, <laughs> number one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Man, am I being dead honest about this. But what you do do at the beginning of Reefs of Time is, in case you've missed it, and you give me about four or five paragraphs delineating kind of a, a, a history of time uh, right. throughout those first four novels. It reminded me very much of, of Heinlein's uh, uh, The Long-Lived Family and the books that were in that oh, and right. how each, each book, you know, where each book fell in the timeline and what happened within it. And for me, that was incredibly helpful. Yeah, Although, I think it's when we first started talking about future histories, that outline of the Heinlein books. I remember that well. Yeah, and, and this has a very similar feel to it. Until you get into the book, and then it goes haywire on me. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you mean that in a good way. <laughs> and I absolutely do. Because time becomes a, a Schrodinger construct at that point. And... If you're not paying attention, you're not being a good reader. Yeah, that's true. What made you, what made that happen here? Oh my God, um, I'm not sure I can answer that question because I'm sorry. When, you have to when I <laughs> when I when I'm creating a story, I'm not always sure where I'm going with it. In fact, I'm often not sure where I'm going with it. I probably have the end dimly in view. But I'm not one of these people who outlines everything and knows all the pieces before he starts writing. I jump in and I discover a lot along with my characters. I have an editor who, who once described me as the most intuitive writer he's ever worked with, which by what he meant, that was a nice way of saying, Carver, you never know what the hell you're doing until you've already done it. And then you look back and say, oh, right, right. And Wait, I, Go ahead, I'm sorry. Well... Nope, you go ahead. I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> I'll try not to do that again. <laughs> but, but in order to make that work as well as you do, um, and I was talking to Cam about this today, it's like your characters are Lego blocks. And each block is very sturdy and very clear and very precise and locks clicks with, with a click that you can almost hear into the next piece that you build upon it so that when you get to where you're going each of your characters is clear precise and and you don't sit there and go as i've done with many science fiction books why in the hell did that character do that well i'm really glad to hear you say that because that's what i was trying to do 
So to hear you say that that it happened is is very gratifying to hear. It absolutely happens, which leads me to the question: if if you don't really plan out the story, and and I get that you know it becomes this kind of vague outline: is we're starting here, we're ending there. Let's see what the hell happens. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, I keep lots of notes, and, well, and yeah, all of this is, is circling in my head like a snow globe, like a gigantic snow globe. All of these pieces of the story and the characters and things that have come before. And if I'm doing it right, if I say the right spells, uh, the little bits of snow fall together and create a snow sculpture at the end of it all. I only just thought of that metaphor. I kind of like that. That's uh, a great metaphor, though. Yeah. That uh, really does pretty well describe what I'm doing. Think of think of them as glitter. You were talking. I heard about glitter recently. <laughs> Where did I hear about that? But little pieces of glitter. <laughs> um, and and I'm going through that same process now with the uh, seventh and final book of the series, Masters of Shipworld, which will pick up where this leaves off. This book does end, um, but there is more to be said. And I'm I'm going through the same process right now of all these little pieces of glitter that define certain points of the story are circling in this space in my head, and I'm trying to pull them together. We're going to get back to Shipworld in a second because I have hundreds of questions to ask about that. So do I. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> I'm glad. No, I, I, I'm glad that you know slightly more about it than me, but not all of it. <laughs> but the, the, the question that I have is, do you keep a Bible of your characters so that at some point, either in your head or even on paper or note cards, I mean, I, I've known writers who do all three. Mm -hmm. And at one point, you, you're writing something, and the alarm goes off, and it says, this character cannot do that. Try again. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I do in a manner of speaking. I don't – there are writers who have notebooks full of, of worked-out yeah. bios of their characters and all that. I don't, I don't have that. I have – I learn a lot about my characters as, as the story proceeds when I need to know something about them. That's usually when I find out. I'm not that not that I don't have some knowledge beyond what appears in the stories, but um, I do keep. I, I started using a, a piece of software called Scrivener, which was created for writers. Mm -hmm. uh, in the course of this book, because it was so hard to hold everything together uh, in Microsoft Word, and Scrivener lets you uh, have all these pieces of your notes and your outlines and and all the chapters lined up. And if you need to move chapters around, you can do that easily. And that became a very useful tool for me to uh, be able to refer to uh, previous previous text. Sometimes, for instance, the description of a character, I'll just literally copy and paste out of um, the passage where they're introduced and save that to refer to, which was very handy when I was trying to describe to the cover artist what my character looked like. Because <laughs> I don't, yeah, I I don't really, I don't, entirely picture my characters visually i do to a degree but mostly i see them from the inside out and i i i see their thoughts and how they're reacting and so sometimes it's hard for me to to flip it around and okay 
what does this face look like? Oh, oh, well, draw me a picture and I'll tell you if it looks like the person. <laughs> no, that's not it. Let's change it a little bit. <laughs> so when you, when you look through their eyes instead of at them, it becomes very different. It it's is. very difficult to explain. It's totally different. And, and you do the same kind of thing um, with your settings. Uh, every time I thought I knew what I needed to know about Shipworld, what I needed to know about the universe that you had created, um, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that's... That, my friend, is not a complaint. Good. That, that Good. is where you go, son of a bitch, he got me again. Nice job. <laughs> and, and, and there are some people where, where you go, son of a bitch. No, he got me again, but that's not fair. Ah. You, you know what? Okay. You, yep, and I there's do. a clear difference there. I know exactly what you mean. So we first see Shipworld actually at the very end of the first book, uh, maybe literally the last p couple of pages. Um, and it's just a staggeringly large collection of shapes out at the edge of the galaxy in darkness with, with you know, winking lights and things like that. Right. So it's, it's just an, an, an unfathomable structure that, uh, that John Bandicoot finds himself uh, flying toward and then into, not crashing into, um, docking and entering into. His life's about to change. His life has already changed. Now it's changing more. So I, I mean, speaking of the the worlds, I had a a, a lot of fun um, in the second book. We we really explore some of the aspects of Shipworld, and then in the third book, they're catapulted away from Shipworld to uh, uh, an ocean world. And most of that story, the infinite sea actually takes place underwater. So I was able to do something completely different with that world. And then in the fourth book, they wind up in the Orion Nebula and it's all about stars and sentient stars and, and gaseous clouds and things like that. And um, so I've been able to have a pretty wide playground in this series. Clearly you do. My, my, my thought is, that it's very difficult in an amazingly wonderful way to pigeonhole what it is you're doing. You've been described both as an author of space opera and an author of hard science fiction. Mm -hmm. They're about as far apart within the genre as two can be. And very rarely, if ever, do they converge. And when they do converge, it's usually a very uncomfortable comfortable melding and there's a lot of sand within those gears to kind of gum it up um and yet <laughs> and, and yet the release of time uh, does both did, 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 did you go out specifically to do it that way oh, or was no. it just there it was there. It's just uh, this is this is what's on the inside of my head. Uh, I I I care a lot about the science, feeling as though it's grounded in some some 
real science and reality. I, mm-hmm. I, I stretch it in all sorts of ways. Um, you sure do. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. And there are people who will say that's not hard science fiction. Um, that's science fantasy. But, and then other people will say, oh yeah, clearly hard science fiction. And I don't really, I, when I say that it's somewhere between hard science fiction and space opera, that's based more on what other people have observed to me than what I think it is. I don't know what it is. It probably doesn't fit any of the descriptions exactly right. And, and from the way you're writing it and the way you're talking about it, I don't think you care how other people categorize it as long as they enjoy it. That's the main thing. Yep. yep. I mean, I, we look at, at uh, some of the hard science in there or hard pseudoscience within this construct. Uh, uh, pseudoscience of uh, uh, full robotics uh, of, of uh, artificial intelligence. And my favorite, the voice stones. Oh, yeah. I like the voice, the voice stones. Uh, okay, so that's alien science. And my feeling is use your alien science sparingly and well, but but you can't explain it because we don't understand the science behind it. Exactly. And, you have to accept yeah. what it, that yeah. it does what it does. And when it fails, and it does fail, you have to try and figure out not how to fix it because you don't know how it works in the first place, but how to make it work again. And those are two different concepts again. Mm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, speaking of the, the science, um, I'm going to do a little shout out here. I actually, there, there were two um, workshops that were created by scientists for science fiction writers to help them get the science better in their stories. And one was Launchpad Astronomy Workshop, which has been going for oh, eight or eight years now, I think, every summer uh, at the University of Wyoming. And uh, I attended the first one of those to kind of polish up my knowledge of astronomy. And then some people in the quantum physics departments said, you know, we should do that for writers in quantum physics. And I attended the first Schrodinger sessions, which were uh, three days of intensive um, workshopping about how quantum physics works and if you can wrap your mind around it. Oh. It was fun. That that used to be one of my favorite, favorite concepts. The, the, The Schrodinger's cat the mm-hmm. rivers of time. And, uh, you know, I, I found myself kind of falling back into that whole uh, time flows and diverts. And as it diverts, it changes sometimes subtly, sometimes erratically. Go figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite T-shirts that uh, somebody bought me, my wife, I think, uh, shows it's an old-fashioned wanted poster. It said, wanted, dead and alive, Schrodinger's cat. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) So if you've got all these beautiful books in which the characters write the stories for you and you just sit down there and take notes, and I get that, (laughs) that, that, that makes so much sense with this series. Uh, can we talk a little bit about your technique? You know, how do you write? When do you write? Uh, is, is it 
I have to sit in the same place at the same desk, looking at the same window on the same word processor. And I have to write 4,000 words a day. And when I'm done, I'm done. And that's it. Or no to everything you just said. Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, writing gets wrapped around family life, and sometimes it gets pretty complicated. I do my best writing generally late at night when everybody's asleep. Um, I don't have to be in the same place. There was a period of time when my kids were young and they were getting piano lessons, and I would take my laptop to their lessons, and and I got some of my best work done sitting there typing while I was listening to plonk, 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 (laughs) and... That worked for a while, and sometimes other things work. Every now and then I go off for a writing retreat and hole up in a motel or or a friend's house somewhere for a few days and just get away from everything, and uh, that's enormously helpful. Um, But um, I do need to be at a computer. I don't do well. I can, like, scribble little notes to myself. Uh, I, I have friends who can longhand their first drafts and I just I can't do that my my the thoughts don't come out that way I have to be at a keyboard yeah I got a question for you it is one that Shoot. one one of the things that I really loved about this book and it's been a love of science fiction since I'm not going to, to tell everyone how old I am but when I first saw Star Wars the very first time it came out in the cantina scene Mm. And that moment when, because up to that point, you've seen a lot of humans, humans in armor, humans in big black armor, humans in white armor, but you saw a lot of humans and droids. And then all of a sudden you walk into the cantina and boom, you have all of these alien races, all of these fantastical beings. And very much the same thing happens with your book here is when I come into this, I run into things like. The, and please forgive my pronunciations. In fact, correct them because I'd I'd rather when I'm reading this be able to pronounce their names correctly. The Tintangle. Yeah, the Tintangle. Yep. Sweet, got it right. Yeah. Uh, which are are sort of multidimensional beings, which when they turn, they almost disappear. They're then you have the Shadow People, whose are, names are pretty self descriptive to what they are, and yep. then you have things like the Poloi, which are like these water dwelling. Uh, um, sort of jellyfish-like creatures, and then there's like the uh, somewhere further along in the book you have um, the Denari, which was that security. I want to call it a dog, but it's just this amazing group of alien creatures, which all in my head I can picture what they look like, or Ick, who I get to see on the yeah. cover anyway. But how do you come up with these? How do you develop these creatures? Because, I mean, I've read and I've, I've seen some of the documentaries on how Star Wars did it. How do you come up with these concepts of what these things are going to look like? <laughs> Go back to what I said about uh, being an intuitive writer. Uh, they just, ah. they come, they fall out of my head. Their names fall out of my head. Um, and so I, I talk to them a little bit and learn more about who they are and where they come from. When Ick first shows up in the story, uh, in the second book, um, he, he just runs onto the scene and, and helps out our protagonist, John Bandicoot, who is in a dire, dire situation. And I didn't know the first thing about Ick when he ran. 
onto the scene. I knew sort of what he looked like. And so, um, and now I understand this is all in the first draft. So my first drafts are all over the place. So I learn a lot while I'm writing. And then a lot of that goes away because it's, it's not needed for the final, for the story that the reader is going to read. Um, but it's not like I sit down and say, well, I need certain, no, I'm, I just about to commit a lie. I have been for the next book. I sat down and I said, you know, I've been talking about the masters of ship world here. Who the frick are they really? And I had some ideas all along, but I finally sat down and said, all right, I'm going to name these suckers and what they look like and what kinds of things they do. And I, I forced my brain on that occasion to cooperate and say, dude, you've been holding back on this, spit it out. And uh, so now I know um, a lot more than I did about my the masters of Shipworld who are kind of uh, pulling strings behind the scenes in a lot of these uh, stories. Yeah, so keep in mind, I, I write these questions ahead of time, so you've now already answered my second question. Which is, cause <laughs> I'm looking at it, and yes, you did. Because <laughs> <laughs> I take my notes, because once I get into the th into these interviews, I my brain goes blank. So if I don't write these down ahead of time, I am I am horrible, just ask dumb. So, But one of the things I was also going to ask you is you have this wonderful, but it's right there in the background. It's not overshadowing the story, but you have this wonderful, almost political intrigue going on in the background where you have these masters kind of clashing in the background. And sometimes almost you seem like they're using your main characters as cat's paws, separating more chess pieces, moving them over here. And it's like I'm sitting there going, Okay, so who is the real players? Are the Poloi really the masters, or are they really what they, <laughs> they seem to be? Are the shadow people maybe a bigger influence than what, what I think they are? And so this is all this wonderful stuff. So there's all this wonderful subterfuge going on in the background. That was going to be my next question, which you kind of already answered with your whole intuitive nope. statement. <laughs> is, is that I was going to ask you, so what? how did you build out that portion? <laughs> I, You know, the political intrigue is actually not my forte in writing generally. Um, so I got to deal with that. I've, <laughs> I've dug a hole there. Yeah, uh, you do realize. And I have to, I have to lie in it. Um, I'm still working out. So there's a, a librarian on Shipworld named Amadeus, who is a Logothian, uh, sort of a serpent-like creature. Um, I love him. He's, I, I, I do too. And he was inspired by an earlier book where, that had a Logothian in it. So I knew about his his race before I put him in there. But I thought, you know, a librarian, librarians don't get enough, uh, enough uh, credit for what they do in this world. I'm going to give a librarian who is quietly behind the scenes kicking ass when needed to. Well, there's, uh, a, there's a librarian right on this show. Yeah. I don't know any librarians who sit quietly behind the scenes and then kick ass when they need to. None at all. None, no, I don't know one either. Zombrary. Not a one. Not a one. Cam and I are never sarcastic ever. Ever. Yeah, I'll bet. They're two of my favorite people. Always. Forever. And nobody will ever contradict me on that. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I loved it, that character. What was his name again? How do you pronounce that name again? Because I want to make sure I've got it right. The library in Logothian. Oh, Amadeus. 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 It was and such a great character. 
It, he's like Amadeus so... and Marmaduke together. You'll get it. No problem. <laughs> Amadeus. 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 Well, like I said, I'd like to be able to pronounce these names correctly when I'm reading the book. And but it, see, he was such he was such an amazing character. It was so much fun to have that kind of character. Like you said, where you have a librarian that's that's literally in his own way kicking ass. It was just such a great character. And he adds to that intrigue. That's why I said it's not heavy. But it's there, and I'm sitting there going, it's funny to have you say that, that now you have to actually deal with it. Because I said, because I thought reading this book that, oh, he must have been building this up over the book after book after book, and he had this all planned out. Now, when you say this, I'm going, oh, wow, he's got some fun ahead of him. (laughs) Yes, he does. (laughs) There are, um, of the characters, and none of the main characters in my story know the answers to these questions. So uh, I've got to hammer on the minor characters to, to come up with some details for me. The, the, in- the interesting thing, I'm sorry, <laughs> that was good. <laughs> the, the interesting thing that I found in working my way through this book is that a, you don't skim it. If you skim this book, you miss so many details. But you don't lay them out as details. You lay them out as foundations of the story so that, you know. You You are giving me so much validation. This feels great. Keep talking. (laughs) No, no. And and I'm kind of glad because, you know, there are books that I really enjoy and there are books that I really have to work at and there are so few that I really have to work at and really enjoy Mm. and and this series and having only gotten through the first one to this point Mm -hmm. but this duology right now has, has forced me to spend the next week reading the rest of it (laughs) <laughs> good. Ditto. Ditto. Good. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> so, Jeff, what's what's happening in the rest of of, of the year for you? What's going on? Uh, you've got well, book number seven in this that you're yeah, working on. This I'm working on book seven, and I have a couple of non-science fiction projects kind of niggling in the back of my mind, but. Um, <sighs> It's going to be a complicated year because these were the first books that I uh, published independently. Um, the previous books had all been published by Tor Books, and they mm-hmm. did a good job of it. Uh, and then they declined to publish these books, um, not because they didn't like them, because in fact they didn't read them, um, uh, but because too uh, much uh, time uh, had uh, passed. <laughs> uh, actually, it I had worked with with a consulting editor for them on the book prior to its being submitted. But um, they um, they just said, no, it's been too long. Uh, the previous books were all out of print and move on so long. Thanks for all the fish. And I, I don't mean to diss them too much. That's publishing reality. And they, they did an amicable settlement and they reverted everything to me so that I could um, – not only these books, but um, older books put back into my own editions. So I set out to um, publish these on my own, and that was quite a daunting experience, as it turns out. Not so much the ebooks, which I already knew how to do, 
but I wanted nice print editions of them. And so I commissioned cover art. The cover art was done by this uh, enormously talented fellow, Chris Howard, who was a uh, I met as a writing student of mine. Uh, he's actually a software engineer, but a talented writer and a talented artist. And he had done a couple of previous covers for me. So we worked a lot on what these covers should look like and what the characters should look like. Especially, Is it, it, Isn't that different from what it was like working for Tor, where they have their own group of artists and they went, oh, this will work? Did you get? Did you have much input to that? I didn't have any input. <laughs> Honestly, my input consisted of, "Oh, I like that," or "Oh, um, yeah, that's interesting." Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually did get some wonderful covers from Tor, but it was mostly without um, my input. Although there was one book, um, "Dragons in the Stars," in which, uh, before the book had been turned in, I was working on it. And I was at a convention and was looking at these paintings by an artist I'd never known nothing about. And her name was J.L. And J.L., J-A-E-L, um, was the name of my protagonist in the, the book I was writing. And I looked at her paintings. And I thought, you know, her style really could work for this. So I, I found her at the convention and, and we talked and we conspired to have her, because she did do cover <laughs> work for Tor, we conspired to have her go to Tor and say, I want to do this book, and we have some ideas already. So in that case, uh, that was kind of um, an underhanded way to get input into the cover. So she did the original Tor covers, and um, there are other covers on that book now. But um, Just a little bit of gentle rage against the machine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the very, my very first novel was... Um, the Seas of Ernath was published by a short-lived line called Laser Books, um, published in Canada, and they um, and they were it was actually the company that published the Harlequin Romances, and they hired a well-known science fiction artist to crank out covers at a ferocious rate, and I didn't know what the cover art was going to look like until I was walking down the street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and a fan I knew walked up and said, "Hey, I've got your new book," and I went, "What?" It's been published, <laughs> and he pulled it out and showed it to me, and I went, wow, it's my book. Wow, it's really ugly. <laughs> it, was, it was an atrocious cover. Uh, oh, no. So many, many years later, like, I don't want to count how many years later, I got to put my own cover, uh, which is one of the ones that... Uh, uh, Chris Howard did for me, did a, a real bang up job. And if you look at my website, my backdrop is taken from that cover, an undersea scene. Well, now that all the rights have reverted back to you for those books, you can make whatever changes you've always wanted to make, including the covers. Oh, uh, yeah. And I, in fact, uh, pretty much everything, um, with the exception of a couple tie in books I did, I've had my own ebook versions of, of most of them out for. Years, but now I'm slowly working at bringing them back into new print editions and uh, audiobook editions. Well, there's, there's, this is, how, how do I put this? This is a writing life well lived. How's that? That <laughs> sounds great to me. Thanks. <laughs> it's, it, there, when you talk to a writer, and that writer is 
has that that sense of ownership and pride and enjoyment in such a sophisticated manner. And it not only shows in how he talks about it, in how he feels about it, in how he writes about it, but how me and everyone as a reader reads about it. It's a special one. And I can't thank you enough for coming on the show tonight. It's been enormous fun. <laughs> I didn't expect it to be this much fun. This is great. Very few people think that about us. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad you're one of them. And, and I hope these things move forward with you and, and things uh, continue to blossom out within this project and other projects. You'll come back and visit us again. Well, well, thank you. You know, I was I was on a panel at a convention recently, and we were talking about what constitutes success as a writer. And uh, different people said different things. And I said, you know, we all want the money, the fame, and the awards and all that. But real success, that's when a reader reaches out to you and says, I loved your book. Or your book really touched me in a way that, Nothing else has, or I can't wait for the next one. And that's the best measure of success, I think, as a writer. Well, nice job, because you hit it. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Sci-Fi Saturday Night would like to take a moment to let our New England listeners know that Northeast Comic Con is March 13th through 15th at the Boxborough Regency Hotel and Conference Center in Boxborough, Massachusetts. Say hi to Gary and tell him you heard about it from Sci-Fi Saturday Night. And hopefully, we'll see you there. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Granite Con, Plastic City Comic Con, and the Upper Valley Comic Expo. We are also sponsored by Dreamforge Magazine, a superb magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and Comic Art House. Visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. And if you're looking for a really great gift book for that rapidly approaching semi-annual Fairbanks Melt Day celebration, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family, now on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is available on Audible, because I'm not sure where else you could find it. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. For more of his amazing stuff, just look at robwattsonline.com. And don't forget to try the Watts sauce. We have, we love it. Our outro was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. Their grooves can be found on lawrencemademecry.com. And a whole lot of love to Jojo and Celine. Many thanks to the gang from the Air Buritum Olfactory Center, the sweetheart of the soundboard, Kriana, and woman of words, Zombrarian. Thank you so much, ladies. From his booking books, thank you, Captain Cam. This is Dome saying, Terry and Jeannie shared pain as lessons, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Better things are coming, Stacy. Stay strong, Liz. So, unless it's daytime, good night, everybody. I oh, don't you hate people like me? I know I do.